I am humbled and honored anytime I get to stand before a body of believers and share God's holy word. Um, but I might add that this is a bit unexpected. And, and I don't mean unexpected in a, a micro view, because if you've been with us through this series through July, Pastor Reagan has told us that he's taking the month off and he'll have guest speakers culminated with us. It's not unexpected that he knew that this time off that he would be in Ohio with his family. So all that's been planned. He's probably watching us right now. Give Pastor Reagan and his family a big hello, New Hope. It's not even unexpected because I've been praying for you guys. I've been praying over this word. I've been prepping for this moment. And I, I believe God has something that he wants to show all of us through this message. It's more unexpected from a macro level, a big picture level. It's more unexpected that a shy, introverted boy from humble beginnings, raised by majority women um, with the main influencer is my mom. She's right here. Can we give her a new hope welcome, her first time coming? It's unexpected that this was never my childhood dream or profession. I never thought I would be doing this. I never had a model or a mentor to kind of show me the ropes, to show me how to do this. Um, I was never the most intelligent or the, the most articulate. Um, it was very, very just unexpected that someone as imperfect, as flawed, as infallible, as unworthy, undeserving, as improbable as me would be here right now before you. But church, how many of you know that our God operates in the unexpected? He declares nothingness into something. The foolish, the meek things of this world. He moves mountains with miracles, and he exudes his glory and, those, and dominion over the unexpected things of this world. New hope today is not unexpected at all. I believe that even from when you were born on July 30th, this Sunday, that he expected for you to be here. Will you pray with me? Well, dear Father, we trust and we believe in you, God. We ask that your, your spirit continues to move, just like over the students, just like over the worship and this precious baby, that he'll move in the hearts of men right now, Father God. We thank you, we honor you, and we know that we can expect all things through you and your son. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So my text verse, I want to give you a little context. It comes a little bit off the beaten path of this series. And to give you a little context, it's the prophet Elijah, and he had just seen a miraculous miracle from God. He completely embarrassed the prophet of Baals, and it was this historic representation of what God can do. After this, he was scared. He was fearful. You see, the wicked queen Jezebel and King Ahab, they had put a decree for his head and the death of him. So he had seen God move, and now he's scared probably happens to us a lot, right? We know what God has done in the past, but then we get in a situation of fear and uncertainty. And so he's running in the mountains at this point in his life. He's looking for God's presence to hear God's word. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, and it'll be on the screen. So the Lord said, go and stand out on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. He's waiting on the Lord at this point. Then a great and powerful wind tore, through the mount, tore, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. You see, God had moved through the, the wind before with Job. 
but the Lord, he wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the fire, I mean, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. He probably heard accounts of Moses and the bush and the burning, and, and surely God would be in the fire. And then after the fire was a gentle whisper. And that's where Elijah heard the Lord. You see, it wasn't the expected or the obvious. God was heard in the unexpected. And that's how he moves sometimes. So the title of my message today, New Hope, is Expect the Unexpected. So if you're anything like me, you like the predictability of the expected. I think we all like that. Right? If you go and leave today, you go and cut the car on. If you put gas in it, you expect it to what? To crank, right? If you go home today and you cut the light switch on, and if it's anything like my home where the lights stay on because nobody ever wants to cut them off, <laughs> you expect if you paid the power bill for the light switch to, to cut on. But we're intrigued, though, by the unexpected. For instance, if you're reading a book, and it's a really good book, a really good novel, and you get in the middle and then, woo, plot twist, like you're probably staying up a couple more hours when you know you should get to bed so you can finish, like, what's happening in this story? Or, let's say, for instance, a, a movie, right? Nobody ever remembers the Hallmark movie for 25 years ago because they all have the same plot line. But that unexpected psychological thriller, you can still talk about that years and years and years to come. Any Georgia Bulldog fans in the house? We have any Georgia Bulldogs? The real ones and not the ones that jumped on the bandwagon after two back-to-back -back national championships, right? If you're a Georgia Bulldog fan, last year when you were watching that TCU game, you were on cloud nine, but you were up by 40 points throughout the rest of the game, right? So it really didn't, really didn't resonate with you. But that Ohio State game, sorry about this, Pastor. <laughs> that Ohio State game, you were on the edge of your seat as the outcome didn't come until it spilled over into the new year. See, we like the underdog story. They weren't the underdog, but we like the story of not knowing what's happening, the unexpected. We're intrigued by the unexpected. I remember several, several years ago, a calmer, a peaceful time when me and my wife didn't have any kids. <laughs> and we would go to our small group. She would go to a women's small group. I would go to a men's small group. And every time she would come back, she would tell me, like, oh, my goodness, you wouldn't believe how the Lord moved. Like, the women were on their knees. They were praying. They were crying out. They were crying all over the place. And I'm like, men, are we doing something wrong? I can't even get guys to smile, much less cry. Like, that wasn't happening. And this one time in particular stuck out because she told me this unexpected story. And so in the group, they were recalling of this wife who she wasn't a part of the group, but she would come and she would be a part of the group and she would pray, but her husband didn't like anything spiritual, nothing spiritual. He despised it. So he wouldn't be a part of church. He wouldn't go to anything. And that was part of her prayer. Um, I'll tell you this, man, this is free. But one of the things she told me is that most of the wives in there pray for their males or their counterparts to take more of a spiritual role. So if that's you, hopefully that's not you in here today. And so her husband was, was rude. He was nasty to her. He was mean-spirited. He was very, very harsh to her. And it probably culminated from his lack of a relationship with Christ. And he portrayed that on her. So she comes home right after it. It's late. And he starts up this fight. 
starts up this argument out of nowhere, pushing her buttons, trying to get, to her, get her to react. And so she tries to defuse the situation. She takes the trash, she takes it outside, trying to just get some space, takes it up to the trash compactor of their little tiny one-bedroom apartment, comes back to the door, and it's locked. That's odd. She doesn't have her keys or her phone or anything. She just stepped right out. She could have sure that she had the door unlocked, so she starts knocking on the door. There's nothing. She starts beating on the door at this point. Nothing. She goes around to the windows. The lights are off in the house. She's knocking on the windows. And nothing. She spends the entire night on the front porch. It wasn't until the morning where I think the husband may have left something in the car and he just coldly, callously walks by like nothing even happens. She goes in, cleans herself up, and then she heads into the kitchen. And she grabs this cast iron frying pan. Have you guys seen those? I know my mom has those hard, big ones. She grabs this fire frying pan. And so most of you are thinking like me, like, what is about to happen next in this story? And so if you're like me, I'm like, she probably shouldn't do it, but I don't blame her. <laughs> I don't blame her. And she takes the frying pan out. She goes into the kitchen and she cooks her husband breakfast. And I'm taken aback by this story. I'm like, she didn't at least spit it in for him a little bit? Like, like nothing? She didn't do nothing? No, what was illustrated in this story that sometimes in this Christian life, we're called to be the unexpected to believers. We're called to do things that look different from the world. That was unexpected to him. And hopefully to the glory of God, it pushes him towards Christ. And it looks different. It looks funny. It, look, it doesn't make sense for us. When Jesus says, hey, I need you to turn the other cheek. Well, I just got slapped, Lord. Like, there's no other scriptures we can go, like, turn the other cheek. Or to, to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Like, you don't know the neighbors I, li I live next to. It just doesn't make sense. And sometimes we're called to do the unex unexpected. So last, um, this is our last week in our series, Law and Order. And it's been really, really good. What we've done is journey through the book of Judges. And we've seen various unexpected, unexpected, unlikely characters through this book. Pastor Reagan talked about Deborah. Jessica talked about Gideon. Pastor Unique Samson. Todd last week talked about Samuel. And you see all of these judges throughout the book. And there's this cycle, this repetitive cycle. That was the theme throughout everybody's story. There's this cycle. God's people, they turn their back on God. But with his unfailing love and mercy, he uses the unexpected things for his glory. And that's good to know. That's good news. So there's a graph of the cycle that we're going to put on the screen that kind of shows this cycle. It's been used before in a few of the sermons during the series, but I want to show it again. And so there's this sin, and then it goes to oppression. From oppression, the people of God cry out in repentance deliverance, the Lord is good, he sends a deliverer, then there's peace in the land. And as I was going through this, I was like, my goodness, God, as I'm studying this, what do you want to show us? Why are they going through this repetitive cycle for 400 years? My kids can annoy me, annoy me after four minutes, like 400 years, they went through this? Like, what's the theme in that? What's the one constant that really steps out that, that you want me to share to your people today? And so the one thing that, steps, that sticks out to me that was reoccurring over 
and over and over is the sin portion. So in this sin portion, this is actually where man makes the first move away from God. This is where the cycle starts, and this is where it starts back up again with us. Now, for the next eight to ten minutes, I'm probably going to lose a lot of you. This is not one of those sermons at the beginning part, but it makes up at the end where we really like to talk about sin or our sin nature. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to hear that part of it. But I think God wants to show something through this. So on a basic level, looking at the children of Israel, this should be really unexpected. They've seen generations of God move, taking them out of bondage in Egypt, having manna come down from heaven, um, the walls of Jericho fell, the sun stood still. There was just glory after glory that God had shown them, and they still fell into this trap. They still fell into this cycle. And for you Bible scholars out there, you'll probably say, well, yeah, these people in Judges, they were a little bit removed from that. And I'd say you're correct. But they, see, they still seen Abraham's promise fulfilled because they kept multiplying. They were in the land of milk and honey. And then they seen judge after judge deliver them from bondage. So they had seen glory from God and they still fell trapped to this. Anytime an author puts something in the book and it's repetitive, you should pay attention to it, especially in the Bible and the Word of God. So, so, so since you don't have to go and search through it, even though I recommend you do it on your own, I want to put what the Bible shows with their sin, this repetitive cycle over and over again. And we won't go through all of these, but look at this. Verse 12, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Three, and again the Israel's did, Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Let's jump down to six, and the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Twelve. And the children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you see this? This pattern? This continuation? And he keeps calling it out. And as I was studying this, the Bible tells us there was two themes, two major themes, this evil they did in the sight of the Lord. There's two sin themes throughout this. The first one is they abandoned God. They forgot who their God was. They forgot who the one that saved and delivered them. And they became complacent in their sin. It's interesting, church. It's easy to look back and say, man, how in the world could they do that? But we live in the, one of the most greatest nations in the country. I mean, in the world, I'm sorry. And our country, even our poor people, are middle class in some of the other areas. And so we work a hard living Most of you got here Monday, and you'll work, you'll make an income, you'll provide for your family, you'll go on vacation, and none of those things are wrong. But sometimes it feels like it's just our own power. And we abandon God, and we forget that he's our true source, he's our true power, just like these people did here. The next one is they served other gods. Basically, to worship another God is to put worth or value to something above God. And that's what they did. They gave their time and their energy to something above God. So so what if I told you guys, I'm a pretty good father. I mean, like, really good father. And you guys are like, oh, yeah, that sounds really arrogant. But no, no, no. I mean, I'm doing all the things, the father and the husband, 
flowers to my wife, taking the kids out, picnics, coaching, dad on the grill. I do all of these great things. Matter of fact, um, a poll was recently taken and five years in a row, I got father of the year. Now, now granted that poll was just in my household and I was the only one on the ballot, but I'll still take it. How many of you know it starts in your household to be a good father, regardless of what anybody else thinks? Now, I, I didn't get husband of the year last year. I don't know why I have to talk to my wife about that after service. I was the only one on that ballot as well, too. And so most of you would say like, yeah, that's pretty good. Like, man, what if we had more fathers like that just in our world than the fatherless situation that we have would be eradicated? Now, what if I told you, but once a month, I actually go and I spend time with my other family? Some of you guys are looking at me a little different, like, what? You do what? Okay, not once a month. Once a year, I go off and I spend time with my other family. Still sounds silly, doesn't it? Still sounds weird, like, what are you talking about? You see, the thing about that is, covenant leaves no room for compromise. Once you're in a covenant situation, especially with the Almighty God, there is no compromise. There's no room for other gods, for other worship. You see, your time your relationships, your comfort, your money, any other idols cannot be above or before God. There is no space. We serve a jealous God. And so this sin, this sin is expected. We all have a sin nature. We're born into sin, the Bible says. From the fall of man, there's this sin nature. Romans 3.23 said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of the Lord. That means all have sinned. So it's not this side of the room, it's okay, and this side of the room, you guys are, you guys are sinners. It's everyone has sinned. And so what we think a lot of times as Christians, we think, well, no, it's the murderer. Like, they're the ones that are really bad. Or the child molester. Or that celebrity that's just doing drugs and, and wilding out like they're real sinners. Kel, you don't know my coworker. Like, they really have it bad. Or even my neighbor down the street. You see, I just made a mistake. I just fall, fell into a little bad path. I just have some bad habits, but I come to church. I serve. I'm not like them. Paul would say on the contrary. Ephesians 2, 3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says we were just like them. Ecclesiastes says it like this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth, one who does good and never sins. So there's this doctrine of original sin. This doctrine that came and started through Adam, and we all inherit it. David says it in Psalms where he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, where he just had this adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And he says this as he's crying out to the Lord. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David says it starts from the womb this sinful flesh nature. See, if you, if you are a believer in original sin, then you don't have kids, <laughs> or you haven't served in the children's ministry. 
I remember my son when he was born, and I had this feeling of joy and adoration and, and love for this little unborn life. And all the ladies around, my, my mom, stepmom, the nurses, and they were saying, oh, my goodness, he's so cute. He's so adorable, kind of like Micah's little baby. And all I can think about is like, man, there's this big responsibility, this big weight on me. And they use this term, which you guys have probably heard it before about, about your kids. He's just such a little angel. You guys heard that? And so I take him home, and after a couple of weeks, and 2 and 3 a.m. of hearing screaming, little angel was not the metaphor I was looking for. He was a viper in a diaper. And it's funny, all of us have been there before you can even open your eyes, you can't walk, you can't talk, but you let everybody in that household know who's in charge. I heard a pastor say this. He says, the reason that God makes them so small is so they don't kill you. (laughs) And the reason he makes them so cute is so you don't kill them. Because it's funny how you can tense up, how they can tense up their little bodies and they cry out and their flesh wants what it wants when it wants it, just like we do. See, church, we're all sinners. And until we understand this, we won't know the need of radical redemption. Until we understand this sin nature, too many of us think too lightly of sin and therefore we think too lightly of a savior. Until you understand this true nature of sin, you won't understand the true need for a savior. And so God's response in this, if he's a judge, if, if, he, if he's a just and he's a righteous judge, sin has a cost. That's the only way. I know this is not the most comfortable portion of it, but sin has a cost. What does God think about sin? He despises it. He hates it because you're his creation that he loves and it separates you from him. That's why he feels so strongly and passionate about it. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says this, therefore God gave them over, remember that, gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. God gave them over. He said, if that's what you want and you don't want me, then have at it. He did that with Israel and he does this with us. This is New Testament stuff. I remember when I was younger, my mom on Friday nights, that would be our time out, we'd go out to eat. We'd go to a nice place, a nice restaurant, um, not Ruth Chris or anything like that. That wasn't in our budget, but maybe a Red Lobster or something like that. My mom probably recalls this. That'll be our time out as, as a family and we go out and eat. And three, four, five, and six, I would always beg her to stop. Like, can you please stop at McDonald's and just get me a Happy Meal? Like, just get me a Happy Meal. And she obliged me. She's like, $2.99. Tells you how old I am. $2.99 on a Happy Meal. I don't know how much they cost now. On a Happy Meal, instead of spending 10 and 12 bucks on his meal, absolutely check the box. And so I'd be in the restaurant happy and content with my soggy fries and my little thin burger patty while she's eating steak and lobster and crab legs. And I just don't know what I don't know. And so what she did 
is she gave me the desire that I wanted. And that's the same thing God says here. If you want to trade me for a happy meal, then you can have it, but you're going to miss out on something that's far more good, far more better, far more glorious. Praise God. You see, by nature, our flesh doesn't desire God's righteousness. Like we, we may think like, man, if it wasn't for the enemy, if it wasn't for the world, which those are real things, I would just be pursuing God. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Our flesh inherently, apart from Christ, doesn't desire God and his righteousness. The prophet Jeremiah says, our heart is deceitful and wicked among all things. But there's good news too, church. God's response is also grace. Man, his grace is sufficient. Man, if we can't give an amen for grace and the sacrifice of his son, that defeats the sin nature. So he gives us a deliverer. Probably the most quoted verse in all the Bible, and you guys can say it with me, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, none shall perish but have everlasting life. That's one of the best verses in the old Bible. That's what brings it all together. He gives grace in his response. As you saw on that graph, right? He gives us a deliverer and then he gives us peace, that grace. And so this idea is shown through judges and ultimately through the ultimate judge of Jesus Christ, which brings us to our story today in Judges. This will be our last judge that we cover in the series, but it's actually the second judge in the book and it's found in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. If you have your Bibles with you today, it'll be 3, verse 12. Starting at verse 12, it's on the screen. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Have you seen that somewhere? And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And that's just a type and shadow, like it was a real person, but that was also their sin. And Lord, the Lord will give the sin power over us if that's what we desire. We just covered that. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. See, Eglon was an evil ruler. He put them in bondage, captivity. He raped their women. He took their land and put them in slavery. And he was also a strategist. What he did is he got these two outside armies because the children of, of Israel, they were just growing and growing. So he said, hmm, I need some help with this. So he was a military strategy, strategist of, of sorts. Eglon came and he attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's just modern day Jericho for them. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now my kids are eight, seven, and three. And legally, I can't kick them out of the house till they're 18 years old. So 18 years feels like a long time, especially if you're subject to this evil ruler. And so verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Man, God is good. And so we meet our judge here and his name is Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite. Do we have any left-handed people? Just by a show of hands. Left-handed people here? Here? Okay. Quick Google search. You guys make up about 10% of the population. Now, did anyone, when you were growing up, a mother or a school teacher, did any of you guys have your teacher or parent try to change how you write right-handed? Anybody try to change you? Nobody? 
No, maybe, okay, we got one over there trying to change you, right? They look at it like, uh-uh, you can't be left-handed. Not in my house, you're not going to be left-handed. And so in preparing for this sermon, um, I went to the first left-handed person that I know. Did you guys know our senior pastor? Pastor Reagan is left-handed. Anybody know that? Well, you do now. Next time you talk to him, go reach out with your left hand and see if he thinks that's odd. And so I go to him preparing for this sermon, and um, he's one of the most kind of even-keel people that I know. Like, there's only a few things that really get him riled up, really get him passionate, right? The things of God's kingdom, this church, his family, injustice, Ohio State football. Like, there's only a few things that really kind of get him riled up. And so when I went to him, I said, hey, can you just give me for my sermon prep, just what are some inconveniences you as a left-handed person may have had? (laughs) He kind of scoffs at me. He's like, how much time you got? (laughs) And then he starts to go on this journey about like with my zippers, like the zippers don't work in school with the desk and writing on the the right-hand side of the left hand for a left-hand, I mean, for a left-handed person, that wouldn't work. He started to talk about the scissors and how they're not made for left-handed people and how they wouldn't cut and the golf clubs, if he's traveling, he can't use a right. He starts to give me this laundry list of things and I'm like, I'm sorry I asked. I didn't know there was a big (laughs) left-handed, it's like the next left-handed convention you have, I'm a supporter, I'm all in. Thank you for, thank you for letting me know what you guys go through. I didn't want to tell him, too. I was like, you do know it's more favorable in the Bible to sit at the right hand of the Father. I, but I, I saved that, though. I, I, didn't, I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him that. But why do they, in the book of Judges, why does the author call out this left-handedness? From a historical standpoint, it was a cultural weakness, especially for a warrior. Like, you couldn't be in the formation as a left-handed person because it would actually open them up to subject to the enemy when you're in the formation and you're fighting. Sometimes it was even looked at as a curse. In reading the Bible, it doesn't actually even call him left-handed. It says in the Hebrew that his right hand was bound, it was limited. So he would have had some type of um, disability or something that was visible that he couldn't use his right hand. And so as we continue on knowing this bit of information, The Israelites sent him with tribute. So they sent Ehud with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. That's about 12 to 18 inches. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. So they would have checked the left-hand side because that's what all the warriors would have. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man, the Bible says. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent them on their, he sent on their way who had carried it, reaching, but on reaching the stone images of Gilgal, he went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. So to sum it up, him and his crew, they come in, they present this tribute, this tax that they had to pay their oppressor, right? We talked about types and shadows, so sin cost, and they had to pay this. They leave, giving the impression that they're going. He tells his guys that he's with, he said, hey, you go along. He comes back. It's Eglon and his guards, and he says, hey, I have a secret message. So he's alone in the king's court with his army and the king, the guards and the king. And then the king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. See, the king, he was playing on his pride. He wanted to know what this message was. You got something that's just for me? You just paid me this tribute, this tax of sort? What more gifts do you have for me? 
Ehud then approached him, and while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the palace and said, I have a message from God. The plot's thickening. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle, in, even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. I'm just reading the Bible. It's just what it says, what the text says. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Church, whatever series you're watching on Netflix doesn't rival this. Like, there's some good stuff in the Bible if you just take your time and just read the Bible. Verse 24. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself. They probably smelt it from his bowels just coming out. And so they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it. And there, their Lord had fallen to the floor, dead. Ehud leaves. He escapes out the balcony. While they're in this waiting period, he runs out. They blow the trumpet. And then all the Israelite soldiers, they come and they attack the Moabites. And then verse 30 says this. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. So one of the most unlikely judges with a disability gave Israel their longest stretch of peace inside of this cycle. So what can we take away from this, church? One of the things we can take away is that God uses the unexpected for what he expects. You see, God loves you and he hates sin, and his plan is for his kingdom. And so he'll use the unexpected things to show to show our weakness, but to show his power. See, Ehud was a very unlikely judge. He had a disability, which really didn't make him a threat. And, and even, the people of, of, even the people of Israel were like, huh, 18 years, there's no breakthrough. Let's send Ehud. Let's see if something happens different. But Ehud was willing to trust the Lord. Ehud came from the smallest tribe, and, and later in chapter 20, they really were disgraced. I'll let you read that on your, your own. It's a very, very disturbing story. And he did it because he trusted in God. He didn't need a crew or an entourage. He just believed what God had had for him. I recall an unexpected story myself in my personal life. I received a call on my 36th birthday. It was just a few years ago. And I had grown accustomed to this because my mom was always the first to wish me a happy birthday. She would call me early in the morning just to wish me a happy birthday. I don't know if it was a little payback for the labor pains I called her all those years ago, and so she'd be the first one to wake me up. But it was one of the things I really admired about her. Um, she was just an outstanding mom. She's a wonderful woman of God. She served 24 years in the United States Air Force, attaining the second highest enlisted rank, which was unheard of in the 1970s for a woman of color. See, my father wasn't present, and your faces are way more familiar than, than his. I, I can't even recognize him. I couldn't pull him out of a lineup. So she was my mother. She was my dad. She was my counselor. She was my coach. She was my friend. And she has this supernatural ability, this gift of giving. Like, God gives us gifts, and some of us have different gifts in different portions. Hers is giving. Like, God blesses her, but then she gives it out. 
nothing more impactful than uh, a year ago, she just got um, word that she's, um, she's, she's in remission of cancer. She's cancer-free. <laughs> Praise God. And so one of the ladies that she was going through the treatment that she would see didn't have insurance. She didn't have money to, to pay for this cancer treatment. So she, my mom starts a, a GoFundMe page where she's promoting it and just to help her any way she can. She didn't tell me what she donated, but I'm sure she did that as well too. That's the giving spirit that she has. And so the story I'm about to tell you, I've only told a handful of people outside of first service when I said it. Only a handful of trusted people in my life. I haven't talked to many people about it. I got permission from my mom to tell the story and her words were, son, this is your story. And so I've always had a praying mom. Like naturally, um, especially how I'm wired, I'd wanna know where, why things are and where they come from. And it would've been no different than my biological father. But I never had this desire. I never once said, hey, let me find out more about him. I never once wanted to find out his lineage. It just never was a desire. And she'll tell you, I'm very inquisitive and I asked too many questions, but this was not one of them. I even had family members that would come over the years to say, don't you want to know more about your dad? Don't you want to find out more about him? If nothing else, when I was younger, he owes you back child support for all your mama's done. But that just never crossed my mind. And I attributed it to having a praying mom because one of her earliest prayers is, God, through my weakness, that I'm enough. And that stood with me and that lasted. And so as I'm sitting there on my bed, she calls me on my 36th birthday and I'm on the phone and she goes, she goes, you never asked about your biological father. It's like, yeah, I never really had a desire to do that. And so then she begins to tell me this story of this young girl who falls in love with this boy and this boy is feeding her promises of running away and getting married and leaving, living happily ever after. But then as the story comes on, something unexpected happens. I appear in my mother's womb. And just like many women, I'd imagine like hearing from my wife that when, when you find that out, you want to tell the, the person that helped put it there. And you're anxious and you're nervous and you're excited. All these emotions are just running through you. And you're really anticipating what their response would be. And so she goes to him and she goes, she goes to him, she tells him, and his response was, so, so what are you going to do? You can't keep it. And when the plot twist happens, she goes, I actually have a, a family, and this would just ruin everything. This won't work. So this nervous, this girl that's trying to figure things out, she waits and she waits and she waits, and after enough pressure, she goes to the abortion clinic. And as she goes to the abortion clinic, she goes into the doctor and not knowing, like, not knowing at the time my, my, my biological father had encouraged this, and we call it abortion as a technical term, but it was really just sentencing my execution. And the doctor says, in good faith, I can't perform this because you're too far along. And so she goes and she tells them, and then the, the plot twists again. He goes, well, no, actually, this is not going to fit the plans. You see, my dad's a pastor. I don't even know this. This is kind of a lineage, so it makes the unexpected kind of come expected. My dad's a pastor in North Carolina, and I'm supposed to go and take over that church, and an illegitimate child just doesn't fit that plan and perception. So covered up sin does, but not this. And so nervously, she waits and waits and anticipates, and they go to a less credible 
clinic and she goes in and that doctor tells her, yeah, we'll do it. I guess if you have amount of money, they'll do anything. And an unexpected turn happens. It says if we do do it, there's probably a 50-50 chance that mom and baby won't make it. So the stakes, they kind of rise at this point. But my mom, she goes back to her prayer closet. She says, Lord, please provide, even if that man doesn't want to be there, only like you can provide, that you can use me, that I can be all that this boy needs for the rest of his life. And through God's grace and that woman's love and prayer and obedience, I expectantly stand before you, church, giving God all the glory, all the praise, all the honor, because he so rightfully deserves it. You see, where the enemy said execute, God said life. Where the world said you'll be another statistic of a single mom, God said you call them numbers, but I call them by name. The psalmist says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise God today. You see, I don't know your story. I don't know your unexpected. I don't know your weakness. But what I do know is that you have one. What I do know is God desires to use that for his glory if you allow him to. You see, you don't have to take my word for it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world, the unexpected things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no Man will boast before him. You see, we can accomplish, we think we can accomplish great things through our strengths, church, and our talents. We believe this enough lie. This lie, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just smart enough, if I just had enough money, then, then I can be successful. You see, power is not found in our strengths, but it's found in our dependence. Our dependence on him. Ehud showed us that he trusted the Lord. See, a lot of times what prevents the power of God, it's not our weaknesses, but it's our strengths. You see, when we stop holding on to our, our, we stop holding on to our strengths and allow God to use our weakness, that's when we can really see his power. You see, we try to hide our weakness and cover them up like leaves in a garden. But what would happen Think with me here. What would happen if we stopped hiding our weaknesses and we gave them to God? So I want to ask you this morning, what weaknesses are you holding on to? What unexpected things in your life that you feel like God, he just can't use? Maybe you're too young and you're saying, no, God can't use me here yet because I'm just too young. Maybe you're too old. Nobody will listen to me. I have nothing left. Maybe you're not educated enough. Maybe it's a physical disability with you. Maybe you have a past and you had that abortion, but I'm here to tell you that God's grace is sufficient for all of us, church. Praise him. Maybe you lack faith. Maybe you're single and you don't have that family dynamic, or maybe you're married and you say, I'm too stretched thin. If we give God our weaknesses, his power can be used through that. 
We just have to let them go and give them to God. You see, if dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. So as I wrap up here, the last thing that God showed me, and I'll go through this really quick, it's God who delivers. It's God and God alone who is the deliverer. You see, Ehud tells us in Judges 3.28, he says, For the Lord, not the Israelites' army, not his left hand, not anything else, but for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. The same Lord they abandoned, the same Lord they served other gods, just like we do, but for the Lord. Man, those are encouraging words. And so judges, all it does is foreshadows the new covenant. All it does is show us our true savior. We fall into the same trap, right? That same cycle. Our people sin, we repent, and then God delivers us a savior. But the only difference is, is through this book of judges, through this journey, through the flaws and the triumphs of the, triumphs of the judges, Jesus did what none of those other judges could do. Jesus came and brought life like none of those other judges could. You see, he came from a virgin birth where no man has ever done that and will never do that again. He lived a blameless life where no man has ever done that will ever do this again. He didn't have a, a mighty army. He didn't have a, the right hand of power. He wasn't a wealthy man. He was betrayed by his family and his friends. He died a gruesome, bloody death on the cross, and he did it all for you and all for me. And that's the God we serve. Church, can you pray with me? Dear Father God, we come to you knowing that we're not worthy and not deserving, knowing that we're sinful and we're, we're objects of your wrath, but through your love, your grace of the Savior, you came and you delivered each and every one of us. God, don't let us get complacent as we walk through our week. Don't let us serve other gods. Let us put our phones down, God. Let us focus on who you are, Father God, because you love and you care for us. God, there's so many unexpected people with unearthed weaknesses, and they don't think they can do it. They don't think they're mighty enough or they're good enough or they're strong enough, and they aren't. But through the power of who you are, you use their weakness for the glory of your kingdom, Father God. So I want your people to hear this message through this prayer, God. Pour out your love. Pour out your grace as your people want you, as they cry out to you. We thank you and we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.